Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Today's reading is taken from Zephaniah 3, starting at verse 9. It can be found on page 946 in the Church Bibles. That's Zephaniah 3 starting at verse 9. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder from beyond the rivers of Cush. My worshippers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down and no one will make them afraid. Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel, Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn from the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. you, Nathaniel. I think that's working, isn't it? Thank you. That's great. Thanks for the reading, Nathaniel. And um, uh, let me add my welcome to peace. My name's Rob. I'm one of the curates here, and um, do come and say hello afterwards. Well, at last, Zephaniah comes to speak of a happy ending. It's what I've been waiting for for two weeks, isn't it? A day of light and joy. 3 verse 16. Verse 16, on that day they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion, don't let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. So if you've endured, I won't say enjoyed, but endured the last two weeks of judgment, then the hope is that this passage will now be even more wonderful as a result. As the darkness of that judgment throws into relief, God's salvation today. 
Have you ever heard the term chiaroscuro? Blank looks. Excellent. Well, it's a fancy word for something that's really quite straightforward. It's the technique in art of contrasting light with darkness to make the light even more striking. I've got a painting here, uh, which Amy says doesn't do a very good job of it, but I think it's not too bad. Uh, there's a candle there on the, um, let me get this right, left-hand side, and the light is falling on the faces of the happy couple getting married against a dark background so that we focus in on them and their joy, so that their joy and light stands out even more brightly. And of course, light in the darkness is going to be a, a really big theme over the next few weeks, carols by candlelight. It's so good because even as we sing about the light coming into the world, our dark world, we see the beauty of candles shining in the evening darkness, into a world under the dark shadow of death. The Messiah has come at last to bring light and life. Yesterday in the news, I read of stabbings, war, political and social strife, injustice, corruption. Zephaniah has painted a very dark canvas, but hasn't that canvas matched and even made sense of the world that we see all around us still today? Zephaniah has claimed that humans are proud idolaters, that we have turned away from the true, only true and awesome God to worship little gods, that make room for our big egos, that we can co-opt to bless our evil. Above all, of course, we worship ourselves and in our pride, in our pride, we ruin our relationships. We hate those who seem greater than us because they threaten our self-worship. And as for those who seem less than us, well, they are at best irrelevant. We just don't care about them. Or at worst, they're there to be used and abused for our own self-gratification. We're pretty rubbish people, aren't we? And God will not let our proud idolatry go unchecked forever. The repeated refrain at the end of each passage so far, 118 and 3 verse 8, the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. You know, God had every right to walk away from us. Like a cheated spouse, provoked to jealousy by our betrayal, there was nothing stopping him walking away from us forever. And of course, if the living God, the giver of life, walks away from you, then that is a sentence of death, for life is only found in him. And that could have been the end of the story. But the stunning picture in today's passage is of a God who has not turned his back on us, but has come to be with us. 3 verse 17 again, the Lord your God is with you. A mighty warrior who saves. And so at last, the command to weep from chapter 1 becomes an encouragement to sing with joy here in verse 14. Why should we sing? Well, actually, we should sing because God is singing. God is singing. Do you know, we've been um, looking for a while now for somebody to replace Ben Shaw, who's going to lead us in our singing? We say, 
God is leading us in our singing. Look at verse 17, the end of verse 17. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I wonder, have you ever been serenaded? Some uh, sad looks from the women in the room. <laughs> Amy and I used to live in Belarus where um, people just do public emotion a lot more. And it's a total disaster for me because it, uh, it looks, makes me look so unromantic living amidst people like that. But it's not very British, is it, to do public emotion. If we're going to declare our love publicly, we'll do it a bit more subtly. Maybe um, a beautiful bit of jewellery. Worn in public to show the world that you're loved. Not that I'm making any promises to Amy if she's in the room. <laughs> Curate's wage and all that. Well, through Zephaniah today, God has a cycle of three prophecies for his people. I want to say they are three precious jewels sparkling with his loving salvation a salvation that sparkles all the more against the dark background of judgment that we've seen. Let's begin then with verses 9 to 13, the first jewel. God will gather the humble in Zion. Now verses 9 to 13, uh, you probably didn't notice, I didn't the first time around, but they're stuffed full of references to the Tower of Babel. Only now we see that God will reverse that sad story at the start of the Bible. In Genesis 11, you can read about it, how our primeval ancestors banded together to build a city. And this city was supposed to be a monument to their own greatness, a symbol of their pride, if you like. Genesis 11 verse 4 says, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Now, it wouldn't actually have looked like Bruegel's painting. It would have been much more like this. This is an actual, a sketch of an actual building found in modern-day Iraq where it would have been the Tower of Babel. This is a ziggurat. That's as high as it would have gone. Who knows? It could have gone higher if they hadn't been um, disrupted in their building. But um, all the same... This picture in Babel is the proud idolatry that Zephaniah has been talking about. You see, they were plotting to topple God. Come, let's build to the heavens. Let's build as high as God to make a name for ourselves, they say. But as the story goes, God confused their speech into different languages so that the people left off building them were scattered and their tower never reached the heights they hoped. Now look at verse 9 of our reading today. Verse 9, God will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord. God is going to undo the messy speech, the impure speech that we see at Babel. He's not going to clear it up by ethnic or linguistic cleansing. Now remember, Pentecost, God now celebrates the diversity of human languages, turning that curse into a blessing. No, no, God is going to purify human speech in this way, do you see? He turns our speech from proud speech into prayerful speech. We stop talking about making a name for ourselves and start 
calling on his name, praying. And notice, when the nations pray together, they will finally be reunited together. Do you see that? The verse goes on. They will serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, my scattered people, God scattered them at Babel, but now they will come back together around, well, around him to bring him offerings. Reunited in worship of the one true God who alone can make the nations one. All right, Christmas presents. Um, who's looking forward to buying? Have you got your Christmas shopping done? My twin sister always used to have this annoying habit when I was growing up. I'd say, what do you want for Christmas? And she'd say, world peace. What a present that would be. But a totally unrealistic ask. Very annoying. Well, is it unrealistic? Doesn't it depend who you're asking? Let's keep Asking for God to bring peace. He's promised he will. He promises here. One day the nations will serve him shoulder to shoulder. On the day that he gathers us in his heavenly capital, the Jerusalem, not on earth. If you hadn't noticed, no peace here on earth in Jerusalem. But there will be in the Jerusalem above Notice nobody gets a passport to that city because they've been a good boy or a good girl. This is not some heavenly Santa, our God. Quite the opposite. Verse 11, look at it with me. Verse 11, on that day you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me. All the wrongs you have done to me. No, the people that get to live there are the people who admit they have wronged God. Why would those people be admitted? Well, verse 11. Verse 11, because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. I'll leave within you the meek and the humble. God is after people, not who are, not who are perfect, who've never wronged him, but after people who admit they've wronged him and come clean before him. And so, this will be a city of honesty. Verse 13, they will do no wrong, they will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. Because, look, if you're honest about your sin today, God will one day bless you with honesty through and through. He'll clean you up completely. So that when you dwell there, you will never lie again. I wonder if you've lied this week. I have. A couple of white lies. But I know the reason I lied, even those white lies, was my pride to try and cover up my mistakes. Will you come clean? Will you humble yourself before God and stop lying to him and yourself? If you will, he will clean you up completely. And on that day we will dwell in perfect peace and security. They will eat and lie down and nobody will make them afraid. The proud cities of man are doomed to fail. But God's city will be a city of everlasting joy. Right, 
How do you feel so far about your early Christmas present from God in this passage? It's a beautiful prophecy so far, isn't it, this first diamond? But isn't it all just pie in the sky? I mean, where is this city? I I can't see it. We've been given the keys to a kingdom we can't see or even visit today, let alone actually live in yet. What's the use of that? I wonder, do you ever fear that God's promise of this heavenly city is just a little too good to be true? Well, Zephaniah today wants to put those fears to bed. He wants you to sing with joy, even now, Knowing with confidence that this home is real and you're really welcome. And the reason for that confidence, says Zephaniah, is God's love. And so on to our second jewel. Verses 14 to 17. So sing of God's love that casts out fear. Well, I asked earlier, um, have you ever been serenaded or serenaded somebody? I've done something similar once. Uh, just once, um, which I think sort of tells you how the experience went for me. I once wrote Amy a poem declaring my love. And it's a very vulnerable thing to do, isn't it? Telling somebody you love them at all. But what if they don't love you back? And especially vulnerable when you then declare that love in song or verse. What if they hate you and your poetry? Well, Zephaniah wants us to stop fearing whether God is going to reciprocate our love for him. He wants us to sing today to God of our love for him with confidence that one day we will hear God sing back. Look at the first verses there. Sing, daughter, sorry, it's very small that, isn't it? Never mind. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. And skip down to the final bit in blue. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you by his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The frame around this central prophecy is full of parallelism. That's actually how um, the Hebrews actually wrote their poetry. They didn't do rhymes. I'm a poet and I know it. No, they did parallel lines, parallel lines with the same idea. Uh, That's how they did poetry. And in the parallel lines here, we see our singing mirrored by God's singing. The first line, line one, Zion, we are called to sing. And in the final line, we see God singing over us. We're called to be glad, the bit in blue, be glad and rejoice. And then in the parallel line for God, he delights in us. Those words in blue, be glad and rejoice, and he will take great delight. They're all one word in the Hebrew. Do you see the point then? If you take the risk to sing of your love for God, he won't leave you hanging. You'll actually find that you're singing a duet. Now the words in green are not the same. Shout aloud, O Israel, at the start, and then he will quiet you by his love. That's the ESV's translation at the end. In fact, they're the total opposite, aren't they? Shout, quiet. What's going on? Well, the shout, I take it, is the shout of the person who's just got off the phone after arranging their first date. Yes, come on! 
But the parallel verse for God, well, it's still about love. Do you see that? He'll quiet you by his love. The NIV interprets it as God falling silent because he's no longer rebuking us anymore. But there's nothing about rebuking in the original. The ESV translates it as God making us quiet as he quietens us with his love. I think that's probably closer. I think then this is the moment where in the middle of all the whooping and singing, the lovers each suddenly lose themselves in the joy of the other's love. And the world stops turning for a moment. And all that is left is being still with each other. And knowing the intoxicating wonder of being wanted by the one that you want. It's a moment of hushed wonder. The breath taken just before the first dance at the wedding. As the couple stand face to face and for a moment there is a holy silence. Before the music and the joy strike up again. You see through Zephaniah, God even now is is writing poetry to us. About his love to us. He wants you to know that you who call on his name are his beloved. He loves you. How did we get to this happy ending? Well, like all good love stories, there have been some bumps in the road of this love match, haven't there? God was angry with us. In chapter 114, he was described as a mighty warrior opposed to our evil, whose shout instilled terror in us, his enemies. But now, 3 verse 15, he has taken away the punishment of his humble worshippers in 3.15. And now that same strength, that mighty warrior, uses his strength not for our punishment, but for our salvation. 3.17, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior saves. How has he saved us? Don't we still have many enemies, us Christians? I mean, like everybody else, we still get sick and die. Death is the greatest enemy of all. Don't we still face many opponents who wish the church would just shut up and go away already and die out? Well, yeah, God hasn't turned back all our enemies, not yet. But he has turned back our most fearsome enemy of all, himself. The Lord, verse 15, has taken away your punishment. Hasn't Zephaniah shown us that God himself was our most fearsome enemy? His punishment, our most life-threatening threat. And yet God himself, God the Son, came as a man at the first Christmas that he might die as a man in the place of mankind, drinking the cup of divine wrath that should have been handed to us so that we might know peace with him. And now we have peace with the almighty maker. Can I say it is surely only a matter of time until all other enemies are turned back to. You see, the point is this. The love he has shown us persuades us that he will finish what he has started. And so we have nothing to fear. But we do still fear, don't we? Does he love me? Does he? When he looks at me and all my mess and the weakness of my love for him, does he really want me? 
Maybe he died on the cross begrudgingly. Maybe he regrets his offer of marriage. I wonder, have you ever experienced an extravagant gesture of love, which then wasn't just backed up by a clear desire to be with you day in and day out? It's one thing to write and send someone a poem, but what really counts is turning up and sticking around and not wanting to ever leave again. What can I say then that the great centerpiece of God's love in Zephaniah 3 here, the central panel of the central prophecy is this, that God has turned up. He came to us at the first Christmas to be God with us, Emmanuel. The bit in red, the Lord, the King of Israel is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, don't fear, Zion. Don't let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God, you see it's repeated, is with you. Is he? Where is he? What day is this that Zephaniah is talking about? Is this still a day to come? Can we know today the love that casts out fear? Well, do you know, 2,000 years ago, when the Son of God, the King of Israel, was entering the earthly Jerusalem as a man, that he might die as a man on the cross for us, and rise and ascend to the heavenly Jerusalem to open the gates of heaven for people like us, 2,000 years ago, on that day, the Apostle John quoted these verses. Zephaniah 3, 14 to 17, he said this, Daughter Zion, do not fear. Because the day has come that God came to be with us. And by coming to be with us to die for us, he has made clear to us that he will come back to us that we might be with him forever. I wonder, do you know the story of Ruth from the Old Testament? The story of Ruth, uh, she was a foreigner from a place called Moab, a widower who came to live in Israel because she realized that the gods of Moab were no gods at all. And that's a very vulnerable thing to do, isn't it? We've got some uh, people not from Britain living with us here, and you know how hard it is. How will you be treated? But once in Israel, God provided a kind and godly and, um, no beating about the bush, extraordinarily wealthy man, Boaz who protected her from harm. And on her mother-in-law's advice, Ruth took the initiative and she made the first move. She all but proposed to Boaz a very, very vulnerable thing to do. What would happen? To declare your love without knowing what answer you will receive in return. And you know what Boaz said to Ruth? My daughter... Do not fear. All that you ask, I will do. And they got married and they lived happily ever after. Well, can I say to you that when the light shone in the darkness 2,000 years ago, that was God himself saying to you, don't fear. I love you and all that you ask of me, 
I will certainly do for you. And yet still it is hard. Hard not to fear whether God's heart really is in this relationship, whether he's going to finish what he started. Because we just don't experience love like this on earth, do we? We don't get or give love the way that he does. The other day, Amy walked off with my car key and left me schlepping up and down the massive hill to the junior school to collect the kids in the rain when Jude was in a bad mood and spent most of the journey kicking me, as he does. And halfway up the hill, I felt spontaneously moved to ring Amy, not to declare my love, (laughs) but to ask pointedly where the car key was, even though I knew exactly where it was in her pocket. But I just wanted to rub her nose in her wrongdoing. Even though it was a very, very minor and easy mistake with no malice aforethought. When that's how we love each other, doesn't God's love, Christ's love, just seem unreal? And out of this world... When our wrongdoing isn't minor or trivial, but dark and terrible. But of course, that is the whole point. God's love is out of this world because God is out of this world. He's not like us. That's why Zephaniah has been banging on about the fact we should worship him. That's why he deserves our worship. He's not like us, precisely because he does love freely, sincerely, determinedly, passionately, unshakably, and unimprovably. He loves you. I know you don't love him like He loves you. And won't that love teach you to sing? Even today, please sing your love songs to to God with passion. Don't fear his rejection. Don't be scared to come to him making yourself vulnerable by, well, coming clean about the ways you've not loved him. Or by saying, but I do love you. I want to be with you because he will only meet you with love in return. If you sing his praise, you will find that one day he sings your praise too. Our final jewel, the final diamond. Verses 18 to 20. On that day, grief will turn to joy and shame to honor. Verse 18. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and a reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. Pete asked earlier, do you ever feel ashamed? Do you ever feel ashamed of the things you've done or had done to you? I wonder what secret shame you carry and conceal from all the rest of us. Adam and Eve and Israel after them thought that the real party would start once they got shot of God, once they got rid of him. 
But the hangover of sin has always been deep, gut-felt shame. Adam and Eve tried to hide their shame with fig leaves, very famously. But Israel had nowhere to hide as they were carted off into exile. Unable, in verse 18, unable ever again to celebrate their appointed festivals. You see, sin is not the start of the party. It's the end of the festival, the end of the party. I wonder, how is your own hangover from sin? Do you ever face up to the shame you feel? Or are you still pretending that this party's going fine, thank you? Maybe you've clothed yourself in a fig leaf of respectability or even Christian activity. We are pretty good, aren't we, at pretending to one another and even to ourselves. But God sees through the pretense. And you know, that could be terrifying. But but remember what he did in the garden when he saw through the pretense. He took away the fig leaf and tenderly replaced it with animal skins. Because he loves us still. And now we see that he goes even further. Promising one day to lovingly swap our shame. End of verse 19. For praise and honor. Middle of verse 20. Honor and praise. You know the word for praise in Hebrew is actually just the word name. He's going to give you a name. A name worth celebrating, which actually takes us right back to where we started in the passage. It's those who stop trying to make a name for themselves, but humbly call on his name, who God will give a name. God says this to you then, if you call on his name today, you won't feel ashamed forever. A day is coming when you're going to wake up and not feel any regret from the night before. A day when you will look back on every day and know that was a day well lived with nothing to regret. And please see, a well-lived life doesn't mean a life without parties. God always designed life to be a party, a festival, verse 18. That was his plan for Israel, to hold festivals all year round to his honor and for ours. And you know, our new party has already begun. Listen to these words from Hebrews. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, the party, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. No higher honor than that. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Oh, yes, he will make you perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, because the word it speaks is this. Don't be afraid. I love you, and I am going to take you home. Verse 20. He will gather us at that time. He will bring us home. We're already standing at the gate, feeling the warmth from the inside, hearing the merry songs, sensing the love.
Don't be afraid. Let's pray. Father, we are nearly there. We know that Jesus is standing at the gates and we long for him to come. Please fill us with confidence that he will come for us and take us to our new home to know the joy of his love forever. Amen.